Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live from the number one RV-based podcast in the entire advancement sector. My family and I are on our RV road schooling journey and currently north of San Francisco in the Petaluma area. It's Halloween tomorrow, and we had no idea that Petaluma is where everybody from San Francisco comes to get their pumpkins. So we really couldn't have timed it better. Uh, I hope that everybody has something fun planned, uh, adjusted, though it, may, though it may be in many cases. I am really excited to welcome Angela Wimmer, the Vice Chancellor uh, for Advancement at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, and her colleague, Stephanie Freilich, who serves as the Associate Vice Chancellor of, develop, of Development. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. We're excited to join you on your RV trip. <laughs> <laughs> so if some of you are catching any of these clips uh, via video, we, we do record these via video, but odds are you're listening um, in audio. But if you were seeing it on video, you would see Stephanie and Angela sitting next to one another in a small conference room, which feels uh, so foreign to me at this point. And so we did want to put a safety disclaimer out there that Angela and Stephanie are part of the same quarantine isolation pod. Is that what we're calling it? Right, yes. <laughs> Our kids play together. We're, um, yes, a very small isolated group that, that get together. So being coworkers and pod members, I mean, <laughs> you've spent some time together this year, I guess it's fair to yeah. say. All right. Well, I'm gonna start a little bit. Uh, uh, I think I'll start with Angela. Love for you to just share a little bit of your advancement journey from, um, you know, growing up. And I will note, we have uh, uh, both Angela and Stephanie are Auburn uh, alumni, and, and that will for sure be a part of the story. But uh, tell me a little bit about your path to Auburn, Angela, uh, and when, uh, if at all, along that journey, you first started thinking about the world of uh, philanthropic giving. Well, I, I really didn't think about philanthropy as a career until I started my you know, real job after college. And I went to work for a senator on the Hill in D.C. and um, was recruited by a congressman to run his congressional campaign. And I really didn't know any better than to say, yes, that sounds exciting. <laughs> Um, in hindsight, I probably should have said no and, and run. It was the hardest work I've ever done in my entire life, but I also loved it. Um, and Tell me more about that. Cause I've had, you know, a few friends who've gone that down that path and it almost seems like that recent grad gig on the Hill. It's almost like a professional fraternity or sorority, just like the relationships, the experiences, um, like what really stands out during that part of your, your life and any favorite memories or favorite people you interacted with along the way? Well, you, you just meet so many amazing people. So it is kind of like an odd sorority of fraternity, but it's also walking down the halls and being in the elevators with Colin Powell and, you know, having these conversations that you just never would have in normal everyday life. So it, you you pick up these little tidbits and conversations and in, in hallways that you just wouldn't get to experience anywhere else in the world. Um, and then working on a campaign, it was, I worked for a congressman from Washington state and just the time difference and us flying from DC to Washington state and working, you know, pack breakfasts in the morning and then making calls to his constituents at night. I mean, I probably aged 10 years in a, a year working on that campaign. It was just 
grueling work, but also phenomenal because it, it taught me the, the power of impact and, and multipliers. So it, even the, the $10 gifts to the campaign, you know, all of those adding up made such a huge difference. And especially in an atmosphere like that, where you're, every vote counts and you're, you're really trying to, to reach masses of people. Um, so it was a very interesting experience. But I, once I realized that I loved fundraising, I decided that I really wanted to make a living in the nonprofit sector. And I started kind of investigating what that looked like because it's, it just wasn't a career path that any of my friends' parents had taken. It wasn't anything that I had experience with other than, you know, going to food banks with my mom and my church and, you know, serving in that capacity as a volunteer. I just didn't ever consider that as a, a, a future as far as how I wanted to spend the rest of my life working. It, it felt more like something that I do on my weekends or, or after work. For sure. Yeah. You don't grow up realizing that uh, inspiring people to, donate money can be a, a legitimate, rewarding, exciting right. yes. career path um, for sure. Well, I, I want to say to our audience that given that it's election season, that we sought you out as a, uh, the perfect guest to be able to compare and contrast political fundraising to higher ed fundraising. That's not the case. It's a total coincidence, but that is uh, really fun to hear about. And I do look forward to kind of coming back to that because um, you know, one thing that we've always been inspired by as it relates to political fundraising is it's just so much more time boxed, right? The cycles are really short. They're rapid. They're intense. You don't have a 50-year donor life cycle necessarily to steward when you're trying to get that vote counted by that day and you need that money to make that ad investment. And so I've always just been um, so impressed by the intensity with which political fundraising has to be conducted, even though it may be grueling when you're in the middle of it. Yes. Um, let's kick it over to Stephanie for a little bit. Tell me about your journey to Auburn and, um, and uh, when you realized that going down this philanthropic path might be uh, a place to spend your career. Sure. I have to laugh that Angela said um, she, you know, when you get to sit in rooms with people like this, I call them hell. And it was when she went to Cambridge. <laughs> so it wasn't that she didn't ever get to do that again and she got to do it um, very quickly. So I definitely think that um, she's had some serendipitous uh, things happen for sure in that regard. But um, no, about me, I started my development career with the American Cancer Society, really just connecting with um, an opportunity that was available and, and a passion area of mine. Um, having a mother that had passed away from breast cancer when I was young um, it was really a no-brainer to me to um, be asked to make a difference in that space and, and commit to it. So um, that type of fundraising is very different than academic, higher education, major gift fundraising. It was community-based event fundraising. Um, you, it's different at, from political fundraising, but you also learn a different kind of grit um, that, you know, that, that has served me very well. Um, and a different way of thinking about stewardship ourselves, right? So being good stewards of donor dollars in our work. Um, we couldn't even purchase pens um, <laughs> without question marks. You know, when, when I first got to Auburn and they gave me a supply catalog, I thought, what? <laughs> you can buy all of these things? So, um, you know, it's, it's just a different world and I'm glad to have the different perspective. But I was recruited to Auburn by um, one of our colleagues, Tara Jones, another amazing friend, mentor, um, still at Auburn now. I'm sure you may work with her in uh, the Evertrue space also. But um, 
she recruited me over to Auburn. Uh, we uh, met in junior league and um, I, another area where I learned some interesting things. When you lead volunteers, you can do a lot. <laughs> so um, that's a certain skill set that I, I definitely am glad that I was able to, to, um, to have stretch me uh, during those years. But Tara um, invited me to join her team at Auburn in the business school. Um, she told me when I got there that an angel was already there. Um, so that's where we first crossed paths. She told me that um, a lot of development professionals would never in their career experience what I did in the first year there, which was um, the naming of a college. Um, we had just the most dynamic group. Our dean was phenomenal. Uh, a lot of things came together in that year that a lot of development professionals would never um, never get to experience and to that scale. And, and I was able to see a lot. I didn't even understand um, for me how uh, amazing of a connection it was to have me starting at the business school, um, which I was an alumnus of there, but just uh, there's, I'm glad that I cut my teeth there in higher education fundraising as well. Um, so it was, a, it was a great path. Angela immediately, um, we immediately clicked. <laughs> so I started out, um, supporting Angela as a development coordinator. She was a development officer there, and um, she's somehow um, liked what I did and, and struck me along. It's <laughs> taken me along on her adventures since. Well, I'm curious for both of you. I, I always love um, getting the perspective, especially, you know, when you're graduates of a community like Auburn, where it, it's truly um, in a league of its own as far as the connectivity, the uh, I mean, it, I was just actually talking about this with somebody uh, this morning, uh, Auburn came up and there just aren't too many institutions where when you see somebody wearing the gear, you're compelled to yell something out loud every yeah. single time. And I, uh, I got to experience that last year. I went down, um, uh, Jane and, and Jason Peavy uh, hosted me for the Auburn Ole Miss football game, which was an incredible experience. I went to the store, I got all the gear um, and, uh, and they won, which was, which was really fun. But but I'm always curious to kind of get the perspective when you are a student or you're a member of the community or you're an alumnus or an alumna of the community, it's one thing. But when you go on the inside, right, then you kind of get the real deal look at, at, at you know, the belly of the beast. And it's not always all, you know, roses and, 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 and perfection the way that we want to present it to, um, you know, to our alumni community at times. And so I'm just curious, like, was that transition at? hard at all? Were there any surprises, you know, having been students there, you know, in the same school, but then, you know, when the dean is your boss, it's different than when the dean is your dean. And so I'm just curious if you have any memories um, of kind of making that shift from it just being your alma mater to being your employer. I was, I think, surprised at um, how little I knew about what a dean and a president do. <laughs> so, what I understood as a student, you know, I get letters in the mail that said, you know, you're on the president's list or, um, you know, whatever grades, but I really never had interaction with the dean or the president. So to see behind the scenes that they weren't just kind of sitting in an ivory tower doing not much except sending out these letters to students was interesting to me. I feel like I learned a lot about the inner workings of the institution, but the family this, part of this can I just ask really quickly, this is going to be a bombshell reveal on the Ray's podcast. What do presidents and deans do? Right. <laughs> Better yet, what do provosts do? <laughs> what do provosts do? 
So our um, former dean is now provost at Auburn. He still doesn't know. <laughs> He's a mentor of ours and somebody that we talk to all the time and even have text chains with. So he's amazing, but he does laugh all the time that nobody knows what a provost does and he still questions that himself. Um, well, maybe yeah. we'll get him on the show someday and right. we can yeah, talk yeah. through it. But really in your great. own words, Dean <laughs> Provost President, what do right. I do? I, I'm curious. Tell me. <laughs> yes. Um, but I mean, what they have to do on a daily basis is pretty amazing from, you know, working with faculty and you know, helping create curriculum to working with donors and um, and showing their passion for work and um, it's just a whole myriad of things that they have to really pivot to on a daily basis. But one thing that didn't change for me going from student to working at Auburn was the Auburn family is real and it is special. I've worked at a lot of other institutions now and I've not seen that sense of a family anywhere else. Um, at Texas Tech, the Red Raiders really have a sense of community as well, but it's still, it just, and maybe it's because I grew up as a student at Auburn, but it just didn't feel the, the same. It's a, it's a very close-knit community, but Auburn, they really consider themselves family. So like in Iceland, we saw people wearing Auburn gear. And so of course we had to scream more eagle <laughs> and they came over, introduced themselves. We all started talking and, you know, now we're friends forever. <laughs> um, and that is just this immediate bond. My husband and I met in California. Um, we went to an Auburn alumni football watching party. We never met, saw one another and, you know, we're immediately friends because we had this Auburn connection. I mean, that's what's supposed to happen at football watching parties. What a great <laughs> success story. I love it. Awesome. Right. Um, it, well, let's just touch on that for a minute because, you know, one thing that really stands out to me um, in, in your career, Angela, is that um, I talked to somebody yesterday who is an advancement leader who spent 20 years at the same institution, went there, started there as a student worker, moved up the ranks. Sometimes that happens. I think it's happening less and less frequently these days. Um, your path is much different. You have traveled all over the country, uh, the world. Um, and I'm just curious to kind of get, you know, that, that part of your journey. And, and were you always open to that kind of movement? And it looks like you, you sort of made the move from DC, uh, uh, actually out my way right now, uh, here, here in California. Um, sounds like you found the Auburn community there, but I'd love to know a little bit about just what it's been like sort of restarting, you know, socially in these different um, cities where you've worked. Please share with our audience kind of where you've, where you've uh, been. Uh, and then, you know, has Auburn always been a part of your local connectivity as you've uh, made some of those moves? Yes. So um, even moving to Cambridge, one of our donors who um, Ron Sanders worked at um, Warner Brothers. He had also lived in London for Cambridge, Cambridge, UK. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Um, so um, he immediately connected with me and we talked about his time in London and what he wished he had done and what he wished he'd known when he first moved there. So even making these moves to other institutions, Auburn has played a, a huge role in that for me. Um, but I've always been interested in meeting new people, learning new things, um, seeing different places and things. I, I moved to Spain right after I graduated from Auburn. I, I went, I was 
part of the travel abroad program to Spain. Um, and I've, I've just always had that, I guess, need it, more than just a desire, like a, a need to, to know different things and different people in different ways. Um, I, I don't ever like kind of doing the status quo and, and staying still for too long. Um, and even at Auburn, my position there changed a few times. Um, so I was there for five to six years. And even while I was there, I was doing different things. I, I just don't think I'll ever be satisfied sitting still for too long unless I have really big project like I do here at QAMS. Um, so it's, and even during the pandemic, I've been feeling really claustrophobic because we haven't been able to travel. And I, I just love different cultures and different people. And I think that's why fundraising really appealed to me from the beginning, because you get to meet so many different kinds of people who are leading very interesting lives. And it's so easy to just sit and learn about people and then connect them with the, the new and interesting things you found on campus that um, you know will be a perfect marriage for the, the two of them. Brett, Angela got so bored in quarantine and uh, she's, you know, she kept saying, oh, I can't go anywhere. She kept booking these trips. Where'd you book the trip to yeah. that was like kind of stuff for October? Curacao. Curacao. She said, oh, I booked, which book trip to Curacao? I was like, did you enjoy that? Because you're going to be canceling, <laughs> the, you know, did you enjoy the booking process? Because that's it. So um, she ended up buying, you know, we like to say a pool with a house around it yeah. um, for the end of the summer. And, and when they moved in, she said, oh, well, I think I'm satisfied now for a little bit longer. So. Um, she does have ways to cure her yes. <laughs> travel woes. Buying and selling houses right. on the end of it. I, I need to stay extra busy. Like, <laughs> right. Past the point where it makes any logical sense. But one, the beautiful thing about Angela is she is not intimidated by that. Um, she, I remember she called us after she moved to Cambridge because we did have to make the, um, like you, the qualifier, like you said, England <laughs> in Auburn when she started announcing she was going to Cambridge everybody thought oh which England you know <laughs> so we just started saying it automatically but um we did you know we were we were also very sad but surprised and happy for her all at the same time but you know I remember talking to her while she was over there and she said I love it it's great but there's it's so different but one of the great things about that is she went over there and she quickly adapted, and I think that's the story that she takes away, even if the methodology is different. And, you know, at Cambridge, they turn money away all the time. <laughs> that's not a problem. Um, a lot of institutions that I've seen have. But, um, you know, it's just, it was a whole different, kind of a different world. But I think just the adaptability she was able to prove um, through being able to do that successfully just speaks volumes. And so she's not afraid her kids um, <laughs> and husband are, just along for the ride. And, um, I, I honestly, I, I really, I want to know more about, I want to know more about your husband because yes. it, it, it's definitely, uh, it sounds like uh, you, you've got a great partner in, uh, in crime who's willing to, uh, you know, to adjust and pivot. And, and that's really, really neat and important. Um, if you're going to be in a line of work where you can not only be um, moving to have new experiences and professional advancement, but then whenever you get to wherever you're going, you're constantly on the move as well. So it's, I'm sure it's not easy to balance. Yes. I, I have to ask a little bit. Um, first of all, one of my favorite memories at Evertrue, which I've not thought about in a long time, is we were a year or two in. And one of the things we did at the beginning of our kind of startup journey, we're just trying to meet people in the Boston area and get connected. 
Um, and we applied to this contest that the British consulate was hosting in Boston. And they were looking for startup companies that um, might have products or services that are applicable to the UK that would support kind of cross-border uh, growth and connectivity, but at the same time, without some kind of support would be unlikely to actually spend a lot of time doing business development in the UK. So we submitted this thing, it was called the UK Trade Investment Go for Gold Competition. And we won, which we were just like through the moon because it included like a two week trip to the UK where they set up meetings for me and my co-founders with Oxford, with Cambridge, with UCL, with uh, uh, LSE. We were, we, it, and we had barely a prototype at that time. We had nothing of value to offer, but it was truly an incredible um, learning experience. And I think one of the things that struck me was that it was a pretty, um, it was a relatively immature market from a fundraising perspective. And that was a period when a lot of Americans were getting recruited to essentially, I mean, not sure that they'd like to hear it this way, but to really bring an American fundraising um, expertise or style to, um, to this kind of emerging sector. And so I'm guessing maybe you were a part of that wave, but did you connect with other expats um, in the UK? And do you still, I mean, obviously we're in a unique uh, international tr travel uh, environment now, but do you expect that will continue? And how do you kind of balance the um, let's Americanize uh, fundraising there versus let's um, have some specific nuances that align with their culture and um, the kind of history there? Right. And um, you're absolutely right. I was part of the wave of Americans going over. And um, I, I do think there are some, some great things that we've done in the U.S. to help develop philanthropy as a profession that weren't necessarily done the same in the U.K. Um, but also culturally, it's very different. I, I feel like it's probably most similar to the Deep South, which is um, where I worked in Auburn. Um, so a, a lot of people don't necessarily like to talk about money. <laughs> um, and in the UK, they're, they're pretty private about that. And they consider their engagement with an institution um, to, to really be kind of on a, a volunteer or um, periphery level. And then they, they make gifts as they pass. So they're all estate gifts. And it's really not even something they would talk about on the front end. Um, so it's a very different experience. And then corporate philanthropy was just unheard of in, in the UK as well. So it was, it was very interesting because in, a, in addition to kind of this UK base of philanthropists, and, and there were some who really wanted to, to, to bring Cambridge to the forefront and make current use gifts that were large and transformational. But then there were also a lot of outside investors from other countries. So we worked in the Middle East and Asia and all kinds of other countries that I never would have worked with at being at Auburn. Um, and sometimes it was just that people wanted their brand associated with Cambridge. Um, other times it's that, you know, Cambridge is on the forefront of, of research in certain areas. So it was the place to go to invest and to see real transformation take place at a faster pace than you could anywhere else. Um, so it's an interesting dynamic because it's, it's really not just adapting to the culture there in the UK, but really adapting to worldwide culture and, and being sensitive to the nuances with 
um, donors from every part of the world. So what's your most memorable global fundraising experience? Anything stand out as being really special or? That's really hard. There are so many and they're all so different. I could spend hours talking about it. Um, and I, I think I told you about this before. My single most memorable gift is from California when I worked for the Muscular Dystrophy Association. And we used to partner with the firefighters and we do a, a community-based event called Fill the Boot. And we'd stand out on the corners with literal boots from the firefighters and the firefighters would be out there with us and we'd collect money at intersections. And it's just kind of insane to think about today that we did this forever ago. Um, but there was a gentleman that pulled up in a car that was just kind of barely putting along and he held a $10 bill out. Um, and I've kind of been over and was saying thank you. And, and he spoke broken English, but he said, that he had a, a family member who had passed as a child from muscular dystrophy and he didn't have much money to give, but that, that $10 meant a lot to him and he, he really hoped that it could make a difference. And I mean, I teared up, I still tear up when I talk about that today. And I took all the money I had in my purse that day and like just threw it into the boot. So I was like, gosh, if this, if this guy gave his last $10 then why am I not giving my last $10 every day? Uh, that is a very powerful story. And Stephanie, I'm hesitant to ask you your favorite gift um, experience because that's, that's a tough one to match. But um, what stands out when you think about, uh, I don't know, just senses of accomplishment or fulfillment where um, you've just really kind of felt that same connection? Um, the gift I think of first, my, my favorite um, story about a gift that meant the most to me professionally. And, and some of that was um, not easy <laughs> because I had to learn a lesson through it, but um, was um, Daryl and Diane Ross are, are donors of Auburn University and they had been donors in athletics. And if you know anything about SEC schools or you know other schools that have athletic departments, the, um, um, there's a little bit of a sometimes line between athletics, fundraising, and academics, which is a whole other podcast. But um, so your, your diplomacy is is really impressive right yes. now. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I did work in athletics too, not in fundraising, but in marketing. But anyway, um, I've seen both sides of the coin. So um, he was they were donors to athletics and um, called uh, they came to an event and called about our what we call the shareholders club in the business school so it's a thousand dollars a year um, they you know wanted to start with that so talked to him a little bit more and um, fast forward ended up getting um, a, a commitment from him a lot more than a thousand <laughs> so um, a commitment for him, from him for the supply chain program in the business school. Um, a quarter of a million, um, amazing gift, amazing people. Um, it was a football Friday when he came to sign the pledge form. And again, this is a this is a memorable gift to me because I learned from it, and I do like to learn lessons. So, um, but uh, they, you know, every, it was Friday football. Everybody's doing, and I um, brought. I said, come by the office, and you can sign the pledge form because to me. That's paperwork. <laughs> so, um, and we were going to steward him um, after that. And I had other plans, but I didn't manage his expectations right. But um, had him sign the pledge form on the corner of the desk with a bic. <laughs> and he brought his wife, and it just wasn't the experience that he wanted. But he was um, 
amazing enough to tell me that and teach me, right? And so he'll always be one of the very most special people in my career because he took the time to coach me through that. Um, and he told me why, you know, the experience had the effect that it did. Um, we had a great dialogue about that. I, um, my stomach still hurts a little when I think about it, but he ended up being an amazing supporter of Auburn University, still is now. They've given a lot more um, around the institution um, and just amazing people. They call me their adopted daughter. And <laughs> so um, well, just the best I, relationships are those that you maintain and they're like family to you now. I love that example. Thank you for your transparency and sharing, but I'm curious because even when you, you know, we, we hear about a pledge form that needs to be signed or somebody signing a pledge or a commitment or a gift agreement. And I kind of picture it, you know, not having been in the room myself for those, I picture it like somebody, you know, closing a mortgage or something like that. And you got the stack and you just do the signatures. Yeah. Um, so I guess knowing what you know now or knowing what you were able to learn um, from, uh, from that uh, donor, what should the experience have been? I mean, and, and how do you think about that when somebody today might need to sign a, a pledge agreement, um, you know, in, in a time when we're not socially distanced, like take me back and, and, and yeah. set up like what you wish you would have done. And maybe that could be uh, a lesson for other uh, raised podcast listeners who are maybe getting out the Bix and having things signed on the corner of the desk. <laughs> so I think that to answer the first part of your question, what should the experience have been? The short answer is it should have been managed with expectations, right? And so um, when you're in a constituency-based university like Auburn, you know, we're centralized here at UAMS, so we can control things a little bit differently than at Auburn. And, and the leadership there was gracious enough to let the constituency units, so I was in the business school, um, really curate the experience for their donors. Um, but what I didn't realize as a young development officer was, you know, his experience giving in athletics um, the pledge form signing was a big milestone, right? So in ours, the gift agreement signing, which is the second step of the paperwork, <laughs> was kind of the big, um, the big time for our constituency typically. Um, so, because we'd already had the discussion on the amount, the pledge schedule, all of that, it was just codifying that into a form. But again, that wasn't his expectation because in a different constituency, he had gotten a different experience. And so I think that there's room for standardization and customization, and you just yeah. manage those expectations. Now I'm picturing that he wanted to be like the national letter, you know, like signing of intent where you, you know, put on the Auburn hat, <laughs> and, you know, have the fireworks going off. You know, it, uh, it's, um, but there are some donors that, um, that, didn't care about it. It just all depends on the donor, right? And I think it, I, I like that you yeah. mentioned today in the COVID experience. Um, one thing that we've implemented here um, is electronic signing, right? And um, Hello Sign, what whichever platform that you want to sign, DocuSign um, that you want to use. I think that you have to be very intentional about the down to a donor, right, down to a person about um, what their expectations may be and what may be meaningful to them. They may be a business person and sign documents all day, and the last thing they want to do is get a big old FedEx box with a, with a formal way to sign something. They just want to click a few buttons. <laughs> so, or um, that may be very impersonal and confusing to them, and we do have to put thought around that still, um, and I think the um, – 
I think of, um, if you've ever read Horst Schulte, um, Ritz Carlton co-founder, he, um, he talks about when they first Im implemented voicemail in um, the Ritz Carlton and they thought, oh, amazing. Our guests can, you know, get their messages delivered to their room instantaneously. And the guests didn't like that in electronic key cards. They wanted a key to open the door. They didn't want that flat piece of plastic that was not high end to them. So, you know, this plays in a lot of different in industries, the expectation factor, of course. But um, I think that we have to be really careful, especially now with technology is kind of where I was going with that. And it is yeah. effective and convenient and safe right now. But is it where we need to stay for, for the rest of time? I mean, and for all donors, I, I don't know. Love it. Very, very good perspective. Um, thank you for sharing. And I think it's a good uh, segue into one of the reasons I was so excited to, to host you both. We caught up in, uh, in mid-September and, you know, we've been right the same way that you all are, are trying to check in with your um, key donors and prospects. You know, we're doing the same thing. And we had a, a, a conversation that was pretty open-ended, um, but it was rooted in some analysis that we have been doing at Evertrue where we were really curious to know what the impact of COVID was on the advancement sector in general. And you all are somewhat unique uh, among our customer base and that you, you are so um, healthcare and medical sciences oriented, but something really stood out when we ran that analysis, which was uh, across the board, the sector was down about 10% in gift transaction volume. Um, and it really started to fall uh, off a cliff once COVID hit, appeals slowed down, a lot of giving days were canceled. Um, but overall, our partner base was up 3% roughly in revenue. And so donors down, revenue up, not inconsistent with trends that we've seen over the last few years, but there were a few institutions where donor count was up significantly and revenue was up significantly, uh, including UAMS. And so I was curious when we caught up in September to know if that was a fluke, was it luck? Was it sort of all in the bag? How did you do this at a time when it just seemed like everything screeched to a halt for at least a quarter um, of the fundraising calendar? And so um, I, I think I might start with Angela a little, little bit, um, given your um, wanderlust and travel-oriented nature, when did you start to feel like um, you know COVID was going to really disrupt your work? Um, and just tell our audience a little bit about what happened? Because I think in some institutions, we're still talking to people where they're saying, we just can't wait for things to get back to normal. Whereas I think you're in a position where you said, things aren't going back to normal. Let's rapidly create the new normal and let's keep our foot on the gas, play offense, not defense. And that's how you grew revenue and donations at a time when so few did. So walk us through that experience for you, the kind of immediate response, some of the early outcomes, and then I think we'll also get into what might that mean for fundraising one, two, three years from now. Angela, you want to start? Sure. So mid-March, we were returning from Florida with the chancellor and um, things had just really started picking up. We talked about canceling the event. We couldn't get our deposit back. So we ended up proceeding and that was really the, the last straw. So we, we got back from Florida. Cases were spiking. And we realized this was real and here to stay. Um, about two weeks later, people started shutting down in other areas. So by the end of March, um, we looked at our team and said, okay, we're not going to be able to have in-person visits the way we have previously. And uh, I immediately said, let's 
institute kind of a, a, a leadership annual giving type approach because when we were at Texas Tech and I give a lot of credit to Zach Pena because he was a huge partner in making this transition happen very quickly. But overnight, we kind of drafted new scripts to check in on people. And um, we had a, a new portfolio sent out to all of our fundraisers, a big portfolio, because you can make a lot more calls when you're just picking up the phone or scheduling Zoom meetings than you can if you're in Florida trying to see, you know, four to five people a day. Um, so we, we really, within 24 hours, had everything turned around and we set up some training for our fundraisers to kind of walk through what, what I traditionally think of as like a leadership annual giving program of, you know, the, the $10,000 to $100,000 donors, but you just have a mass amount of people that you're trying to, to reach. So we, we kind of implement, implemented that philosophy of, hey, we're, we're going to check in with people. If they want to continue having a giving conversation, we're not going to halt that because we're not going to just stop fundraising. You know, cancer doesn't stop. All of the things that we're raising money for on a daily basis don't stop because of a pandemic. And we're on the forefront of making sure that people are safe during a pandemic. So there are a lot of people that want to make gifts to us anyway. So we did continue giving conversations. I've talked to a lot of colleagues who made the decision to, to stop because they didn't think that was appropriate. So I know there are different institutions that had different philosophies on that, but we definitely um, kept our foot on the gas and moved forward. And our fundraisers did a great job of pivoting really kind of overnight to this new model, learning to work from home, we did training sessions on how to use Zoom and um, how to set up your backgrounds and, and all kinds of things that we wouldn't have normally thought about. But our team really pulled together and did a great job of um, pivoting on a dime. And, and tactically, you, I, I have some notes from our prior discussion and correct me if I'm wrong, but you increased portfolio sizes to over 300 people universally. And your hypothesis was, if you're a gift officer with 100 or 200 people in a portfolio, but you're not traveling anymore, it just means you've got a lot of time yes. that you didn't have before. Let's use as much of that time as possible to engage a broader set of our donors. And I'm just curious, did you get pushback, resistance? Because I feel like there are definitely a lot of fundraisers out here, there, maybe some of whom are listening right now, where if, you know, day five of the pandemic, their boss had walked in and said, hey, we're tripling your portfolio size and we're going to amp up activity volume because we're not going to be on the road. That might throw people for a loop. Yes. I mean, there were definitely mixed reactions. Not, not everybody was on board. Um, people were pretty vocal about thinking this was crazy or inappropriate. And um, I, I mean, I think talented fundraisers though are savvy enough to know when they pick up the phone, if it's not the right time to talk to somebody, then you just check in on them and say, as a, a supporter, we just want you to know that we're here for you. So feel free to reach out. But there are a lot of other people who wanted to know more information and you're the pipeline for that information. There are also other people who wanted to be helpful and didn't know how sitting in their living room. And we can enable them to make a difference in a time where they can't leave their house by giving gifts to help us secure PPE or even continue cancer treatments and other things that are just continuing to, to go on a, on a daily basis that don't stop for a pandemic. I think it's interesting, especially given the nature of this, of this uh, economic impact post COVID where it has been, um, it, it's really diverged white collar, remote friendly work versus 
main street work, restaurants, hospitality versus, you know, cloud technology. And, you know, I think what you're seeing is um, savings rate has gone way up among certain categories of people. Um, that's why you've seen discretionary purchases, like what have gone through the roof this year, swimming pools, you know, RVs, boats. I mean, anything that, uh, you know, is discretionary outdoor, um, those companies are doing really well. And if the people that are buying those boats, those cars, those uh, outdoor um, activities, they're your prospects too. And, you know, we often talk about philanthropy being, philanthropy being the ultimate discretionary spend. And so I think that's where in a lot of cases, um, at a time when the savings rate was going up and solicitations were going down, it might've been a missed opportunity for many uh, in, in the sector. Like maybe we were too sensitive, almost treating everybody as one segment, whereas there really is a distinction. And it sounds like you heard that with those donor interactions. Yes, and, and there, there were plenty of, of people who weren't in a place to have a conversation or said they were really impacted by the stock market right. things. But there were also tons of people, you know, we had a $6 million gift and some, some other major gifts that kept moving, um, even in that very early time when people were really in quarantine and not sure what the future looked like. So, so, so I have one more question on that topic for um, Angela and then Stephanie, we're going to kick it to you. You did reference one of your more memorable proof points, right? You need some quick wins when you pivot like that so that if there is skepticism, you can just hit it with evidence instead of words, right? And I think one of the things you shared with me is that there was a 96-year-old gentleman who made a gift via Zoom and convinced his buddy to make a gift as well, or at uh, least those were my notes. Can you tell me more about yes, that and how that went can down? talk about that too. So our chancellor actually visited with him today in person, but it's one of the first in-person meetings. Um, but yes, he is an amazing gentleman. He not only made his gift, um, which is incredibly significant, um, but he also encouraged his friend to make a significant gift as well. So between the two of them, we raised about $3 million. He's one of our best fundraisers. Yes. Over Zoom. Unbelievable. He's also on a, another gift right now with another one of his buddies. So his, yeah, his, they, his metrics are through the roof this yeah. year. Right. <laughs> so he had to learn Zoom, which he was happy to do. We have an amazing a group of fundraisers. So we had two different fundraisers who were working with him, Christina and Greer, and um, they they both helped walk him through Zoom. He apparently loved it. They, they did some really meaningful stewardship with him as well, um, incorporating things that he and his late wife loved into kind of a piece of artwork. And um, so we're really, we're really trying to focus on special touch points with donors since we can't always be in person with them right now. Things that we know through our interactions that are meaningful to them to kind of up our level of, of interaction since it, yeah. it, it can't be as tactile as we would like. I mean, this is one of those areas where, you know, just today I got off a call with somebody who, who was really committed to smaller portfolios, smaller portfolios. And I always just wonder, the hypothesis is let's shrink the portfolios to create the better donor experience, to be able to scale the seven figure gifts and so forth. And I totally get that. But how many people like that gentleman and his friend and that other friend they're now trying to solicit are getting squeezed out of portfolios and we'll never, you know, we'll never know, which is why I was so excited to learn about 
this idea of, no, we've got more time, right? We've got uh, less travel. We've got more technology that we're now accustomed to using. And our donors, even when they're 96, are willing to learn it. So let's really take advantage of that and just scale our opportunity to engage people because there are just always diamonds in the rough. So tell me about your perspective on that. I just see that kind of dichotomy, smaller portfolios and so much momentum around that in the sector. But there are human beings that want to be philanthropic that are getting squeezed out of those portfolios. Yes. And I I really... I understand why people think smaller portfolios, more attention, more research, all of those things. And they make sense. But I I think you have to kind of prioritize and maybe pair the two. Even even once we get past where it's mostly remote interactions, um, I I think everybody should do discovery work. I still do discovery work. I still build my portfolio organically as I meet new people. Um, And and I, I don't think that's beneath anyone. But Discovery work can be fast and it can be done effectively, especially with technology like we have with Evertrue. We can pull lists quickly, show up to work, and maybe you have every Friday morning is your um, your qualification day or your day to sit and just hammer out phone calls or leave messages or send out emails. Um, even as a major gift officer or even a principal gift officer, I still think everybody needs to set time aside to work on qualifying new prospects and growing their pipeline. Um, And I really do think this pandemic, if there's a silver lining, is that it's given all of us more time. So everybody, I feel like, should be focused on really increasing their portfolios and and looking for those diamonds in the rough. It's a a missed opportunity if, if you're not doing that. Well, Stephanie, you've obviously been at the forefront of helping realize that opportunity and, and you probably had to, you know, support um, that pivot and get some buy-in and, and do some of the coaching to really get people accustomed to no travel, high activity, yet still maintaining a personalized donor experience. From where you sit, what was it like kind of going through that period and were you skeptical at all? And, and when did you start to sort of feel that this was actually not only maybe allowing you to maintain your momentum, but actually increase it? Yes. So at that point, I was still, um, I was kind of straddling two roles, um, central, you know, overseeing the central development operations and then the major gifts as well. And so our, we also have to give so much credit to our annual giving team who pivoted really quickly and put out a lot that, um, that was able to, you know, um, be respectful yet timely and, and very successful um, as soon as we we had this pandemic really um, really real <laughs> and happening. Um, so that was that was an amazing job by them. With the major gift officers, you know, I want to give a lot of credit to both Angela and the chancellor because, you know, you say that there may have been some pushback and and skepticism, but you know, in a in an academic medical center like we are and owning our own hospital, you know, the clinical enterprise funds a lot of our budget. And when you shut down clinic, the clinical side, um, you have to uh, make some hard choices and look at some things. And a lot of our peer institutions had to um, make a lot of immediate sacrifices and in, in rifts and, you know, just reduce reducing their force. And so um, we were, we, you know, there were kind of two options and Angela and I are very pragmatic <laughs> in a lot of things, but in this, it was like, 
you can either um, make these calls, do this discovery work, and, and pivot with us, or not. <laughs> so um, we didn't we didn't have a choice. And Angelus was one of the first to stand up within the cabinet here and say, you know, the chancellor asked for reduction in effort where possible. He didn't want to do reduction in force, but effort. Um, you know, if if you were working in the events team and you there aren't any, you know, it's different at the beginning, especially. So could you go to 50%? Could you make that sacrifice? We had a lot of employees at UAMS that uh, took a voluntary reduction um, and gave philanthropy to make up for some of that if they didn't take the reduction. So we had a lot of response to that. But Angela stood right up and said, no, our team can work. Our major gift officers can work 100%. They um, could dive deep into these portfolios. We have work to do. We have generous donors that want to help. Um, we have to be there to facilitate those those relationships. And so um, I give a lot of credit to Angela for, for saying that. And of course, I wasn't skeptical, but I did think, oh, <laughs> now we have to do this. You know, we have to deliver. And so um, there we we were managing a lot of change at that time, personal, professional, as everyone knows, um, there's a lot on the personal side people are going through and that's that all plays into each other. So it was, you know, all of us that lead teams feel like we have a psychology degree and a counseling degree on top of it, and we had to reach into some of those skill sets um, immediately and and take those um, take those farther than we may have taken them in the past. But you know, um, Angela, one reason I came here, friend, Angela will be successful, and in the small or the large, she is she's going to make it happen. And, and the same with our chancellor here. I literally paid her to say no, this. No, <laughs> she doesn't, but I would have moved my family here if I didn't believe that. Um, but you know, that's one, that's a great, um, component that that trust component. Um, I know that, that she's not, it's going to happen and we're going to figure it out together. So it, it, nothing, uh, some things make me sweat, but nothing makes me skeptical. <laughs> um, and I'm certainly, I certainly love it. No, it's, it's, <laughs> Well, I'm going to come back to, you know, you moving your family to Arkansas, um, which I'm sure wasn't an easy decision, or, or maybe it was based on everything you just shared. But a lot of what you put in place, we're almost talking about it as if it's uh, in the past, and it's very much in the present and likely a big part of your future here. And so um, would you be willing to help me and, and for our audience who maybe still don't feel like they've really completed the pivot or that they were waiting or that their team was waiting for things to get back to normal can you walk me through a day in the life for a major gift officer on March 1st and a day in the life for that same officer who bought into this approach on May 1st and as we sit here now on November 1st? I think the days have changed in that um, there was a lot more tiptoeing <laughs> at the beginning and, and um, getting- But even from just message. like, when you think about kind of what I love about your approach is that it was very specific, right? It was not ambiguous for your officers, whether they liked it or not, expectations were clear. And, and could you just walk me through a little bit of like, once you decided to make the pivot, we're going to be doing this many calls per day or that you're expected to have this many meetings and we're not going to measure you on, you know, how many trips you're taking per year we're going to measure you on this instead. We're going to enable you to be successful, but this is what we're going to um, expect from a pure metrics and management perspective. Yes. Yeah, so we did, um, 
we had very specific metrics at the beginning. We wanted um, a certain number of contacts per day, um, and then by, by week, by month. Um, really, you know, we said as long as you hit this by month, you may have a couple days different, you know, but um, as long as that monthly picture looks good at that point, we felt like we could measure well on a month. And so um, we did have that uh, very specifically. And I think that took some of the, that we managed expectations, that took some of the, am I doing what I need to be doing out of it? Um, so we, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't a problem from the beginning. Now um, we've cut, you know, we've, we've changed that a little bit. Um, we, you know, Brent, we, we changed from, um, you know, we stopped all in-person visits at the beginning. And uh, th so there weren't options for that. Now we're just leaving that up to the development officer, the donor. We're finding that, you know, there's, if you go to Lowe's or Trader Joe's on the weekend, there's a lot of people there. <laughs> so, and I'm not, you know, saying right or wrong, but there are a lot of people that are willing to meet in person. And I think it's, it's um, you know, if the people are okay with it, then it's respectfully decline or respectfully accept either way. We at least um, have that option. And we've seen um, people that are so happy to sit together, mass, socially distant, outside on a coffee bench or on the bench with coffee and visit. Um, and we've had some of our, our best conversations and work done in this. And so um, I think it's just, you know, it's just something we've all learned to navigate. And we we could have something different in a month. We've just opened up a collaborative office space. Our employees are entirely, they um, work from home, you know, their home office, but we have a, a different office space now and they can come in and there's collaborative space. There's a lot of room to move around. So we even pivoted in that very quickly and provided them with kind of a home base, but still um, it's kind of the best of the world. You can work from home when you need to, and you can come up to the office when you need to. Um, so we're, you know, everything's, we just all have to be adaptable and agile, I think, in, in all of this. And our team has been phenomenal at that. Love it. Um, We've talked a lot today about uh, your journeys, specific strategies, leadership that went into place, communication around COVID. Um, but ultimately, it really does come down, uh, you know, in any leadership role of can you get the best people around you? And so I'm curious, Angela, when you uh, took the role, when did you reach out to Stephanie? Um, obviously you'd stayed in touch throughout the, uh, the, the, you know, your respective journeys, but, um, what was it like to ask her to, to, you know, sort of uplift what appeared to be pretty deeply planted roots at that point. And Stephanie, what was it like being on the other end of that call? So I think I called her before I started, <laughs> um, and, and said, I need a strong partner that I trust. You're like, I will only take this job if you're coming with me. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much and she said no and so I asked her three more times and she finally said yes um, and her family was deeply rooted in Auburn they've been there for 18 years I think her her husband had a fabulous job in Auburn athletics that he loved that he would have to give up because there really wasn't a job in Little Rock that looked anything like what he was doing um, so they made a lot of sacrifices to to come to Arkansas and UAMS but we had so much potential at UAMS and I think I finally sold her on the story she'd be able to tell after this experience of really building a fundraising program and professionalizing it from the ground up. Um, we really have had to put in processes, procedures, all the kind of fundraising 101 things that you would expect to walk into um, in an academic 
fundraising environment today. We've, we've been putting all of that in place um, and it's fun and exciting and you get to build things the way you want them, but it's also a lot of hard work. Um, I know Stephanie's not afraid of hard work, so I, I knew that wouldn't deter her. Um, but I, I think, and I'll let her say, but I, I think the story of what we could create um, and, and really be a part of together and the good work that we could accomplish is what finally sealed the deal. So Stephanie, it had to be like a little surreal when you think about being a junior level development coordinator um, and then getting that call and having the opportunity to build something. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, you know, we have development coordinators listening to this podcast who, you know, their, their aspiration is to have the kind of relationship and experience that you, you all have developed. So um, what was it like to get that call? But also as you reflect on being able to advance your career and learn, um, you know, there's definitely the importance of learning strategies and skills, but ultimately you need to build rapport with people like Angela to really get those, um, those kind of pivotal opportunities. So what was it like from your vantage point and um, how'd you convince your family to do it? <laughs> I don't know if the second part's happened fully yet, but um, so um, I did have a couple steps in between and I moved up um, very quickly from that initial role at the business school um, into associate director, uh, director, and then corporate foundations. And then I, um, the first team I managed was in the College of Human Sciences. And so I also appreciate that experience, you know, going from the business school to um, the former home economics school, um, it, you know, even though I wasn't there, I was there um, a short period, but it was great perspective on just a lot of, a lot of differences between those two cohorts. So um, from there, you know, honestly, Brent, Angela um, spoke a lot of confidence in me that I don't think that I would have gotten to on my own for a long time. And I've had a couple people, um, handful of people in, in my career that have done that. And uh, I think a lot of a lot of people i think it's important to know where you're going or where you want to go right but it's also important to um really kill it in what you're doing at the time and you know grow and grow where you're planted as they say or you know i i feel um i don't want to sound ignorant or <laughs> when i say that i i've never really um pictured myself in that next step certainly not on the timeline that I've, I've come to, um, that's come to be, to think that two years ago, if you had told me I would be an associate vice chancellor, I remember when a colleague of mine got promoted to that level at Auburn, and I thought, God, if I could do that by the time I'm, you know, 50, maybe I'll have enough experience that I can do, you know, and I'll, I'm, I just would have never, ever um, thought this would be, but I think that I've always just, um, looked, I guess, looked holistically at things, tried to um, solve problems both down to the root of them and also um, collegially and across, you know, so that they play well in all parts of the organization, not just in what I'm trying to accomplish and um, just, just following through, doing what you say you're going to do. I, I guess those are some of the talents that Angela loved in me. And I, I just think that um, you find these magical people that, that, sponsor you along the way like Angela did for me and again just be confident that you may not get for a long time but my family um you know Angela did um like we talked about earlier she had moved around to several different places and I always absolutely admired her for that I'm from Huntsville Alabama and moved to Auburn for college and had been there 
um, 17 years for me, 18 for my husband. We have two boys. Um, it, so it was, it was a big, big deal for us to move. Um, but it, and I give so much credit and love to my husband for, um, for doing that. And I can't imagine being him and turning in that resignation letter. Um, and I will forever feel amazingly, um, just touched that he had that much confidence in me, but he does, you know, and it was never wavering. So, um, I think that that, that did a lot for our marriage personally. It did a lot for our family and it's done a lot for me professionally. And, um, it, it was a wonderful decision. And I stand by what I said earlier. I, the thing I kept thinking about, people did say to me, Angela is going to leave it to you. Angela will never stay there. You know, um, almost everyone said that when I said that I was coming here to join her, um, down to a person. Also, everyone said that, but I just, you know, I said, you know, even if she did, guys, I should be able to stand on my own without Angela, right? So I'm going there to join her, to help her, um, to serve under her. But, you know, it's it's something that I should be able to to have my own, you know, street cred <laughs> on, at the organization, um, even if she does leave. So, um, and she's not, by the way, we signed a contract. <laughs> but um, <laughs> not leaving, like but you could absolutely stand <laughs> on but, your own. But, you know, Brent, Angela hires and looks for talent based on aptitude not tenure, not, um, you know, experience is important, right? But um, aptitude, attitude, just there's certain things that she looks for that I certainly appreciate and I'm going to pay forward within um, all of those that I'm allowed to. Um, I'm going to look for that and pull those people up and tap them on the shoulder and show them their strengths when they may not see them yet. So. I love it. It's, it's super inspiring. You are uh, truly a dynamic duo. It's been fun getting to know you and we're going to continue to do so. But, uh, you know, I love earlier, you said cancer doesn't stop, right? The mission doesn't stop. And not only were you able to advocate for uh, maintaining staff and resources at a time of unparalleled budget pressure, you were able to deliver more donors, more dollars. And you're now, I think, from what I understand, trying to even get more aggressive uh, in pursuit of the mission and staffing up and realizing that that potential that you know uh, is still there. And so um, you're hiring. I mean, tell, tell us about even advocating for those positions at a time when that seems almost impossible for, for many institutions, whether you're healthcare affiliated or not. Um, what has that been like? What are those roles If people are excited about what they've heard today? Uh, where should they look to learn more about opportunities at UAMS? And most of the positions we have posted currently are on Stephanie's team. So yes, you want to talk about yes, that? we are hiring. We um, have not stopped in that regard. We are still building our development team, especially um, right now. We have five open positions, um, two executive director level positions, three development officer positions. We're building out a um, DXO team as well. And so um, we have some coming and some available um, you know, Brent, we can't afford not to keep growing and keep pushing. Um, we owe it here at UAMS. Of course, we owe it to every single Arkansan, but more than that, we owe it to every person that's out there struggling with cancer, like we mentioned, you know, across the nation, across the world to keep going. The healthcare, um, healthcare fundraising are particularly passionate, um, and it's, we can't not keep going. So we are, um, we are hiring those positions. We would love to um, speak to anyone that's interested or have them share those. They are on our um, UAMS website. And um, we, like I said, we're happy. I hope you'll share our contact information. We're happy to um, talk to anybody about them. 
Absolutely. And I, I'm sure it's fine for folks to reach out to you on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, one of our recent guests uh, shared that they had like 50 LinkedIn uh, requests after uh, the, the podcast. So be on the lookout. Uh, no, no promises. But uh, no, it has been a really fun way just to, to build community. And, um, you know, our audience skews uh, more toward the higher education, sort of pure higher education advancement space. And you're in a bit of a hybrid context. But I don't know, maybe any reflections on that? I mean, Stephanie just touched on it a bit, Angela, but as we conclude here, um, you know, raising money for Auburn is different than the community, the mission um, at UMS. I mean, any just perspective for folks that have uh, been intrigued by healthcare or maybe even in the midst of the pandemic, it's shined a light um, on that sector in new ways. Um, any observations there? And then we'll wrap up. There are a lot of parallels. We're still educating students at UAMS. We're just educating medical students. Um, we're working in the public health space, which has really come to the forefront during the pandemic. Um, we're, I think we're still doing a lot of the same things that you would do in a traditional academic setting, scholarships, chairs, all, all of those things that help keep an academic enterprise running. But we also have a hospital and our faculty work alongside our clinicians. We're still working on the forefront of research. Our, our research may not be in, in supply chain. It's, it's in um, you know, cancer and blood disorders and, and other things, but there are a lot of similar, similarities. So I don't think it's as different as people may think, moving from one institution to another anyway, just going from an Auburn to a Cambridge to a Texas Tech. There are a lot of things that you have to learn about each institution and the, the similarities and the differences. But I, I think it's, it's feasible for anyone to make the transition, especially from a, an academic institution like uh, an Auburn to a, a UAMS where it's a, a, a medical health sciences center. Um, I, I think that's a, a much easier transition than even going from a, an academic setting like Auburn to just a, a traditional hospital foundation. Got it. All right, last question. Um, I love getting the perspective of our guests. When you think about the best advancement professionals that you've worked with um, over the years, what stands out uh, among those individuals? What are the characteristics or skills, qualities that you think really separate that top 10% of advancement pro um, from everyone else? Stephanie, you want to go first? Sure. Um, we, it's funny in our interview process, we've been talking about this and different people we've worked with in the past and would we have hired them? And, uh, sometimes that doesn't always correlate with how successful they were, but I think that, um, I have learned the most, I take a lot from several different people, but, um, there was a gentleman, um, Bill Parker that worked with us at Auburn University. He was just so authentic, could make friends with a five-year-old or a, a a 90 year old or you know just all different um all different walks of life people were just drawn to him because he was so authentic and i think that is very important it's it's um it's important to know listen know other people know your constituents but it's also important to be yourself and um i think some of those people are um are the most successful so i think authenticity is so important if people i look for natural problem solvers um i think Stephanie said this earlier, but I really hire on aptitude more than anything. So if somebody has a, you know, 20 year resume of the perfect experience, but they can't tell me how they solve problems or done anything non-traditional besides just, you know, a, a normal scholarship proposal to a donor, 
they're they're not going to be the right fit with me and the the way that I work. So I tend to to look for just natural problem solvers. Um, whether they've actually done the job before or not, I know that they can always find a way to get the job done. I love that, and it reminds me. I, I spoke with uh, Betsy Mennell, who's the VP of Advancement at Weber State University today. And she was commenting that one of the things she's been really focused on in the pandemic is, don't tell me what we can't do now. Tell me what we can do, right? right? What can we do now? And in some ways we can do things now that we couldn't do before that are better for us, that are better for our institutions, better for our donors. And I love that kind of commentary around both authenticity and problem solving. Um, and it really uh, is just a privilege to get a window into your work. It's so fun to see uh, the way that your your uh, paths have uh, intersected and reconnected here, uh, and we're thrilled to be uh, partnered as you try to unlock some of that potential at UAMS. So, so are you bringing think, your RV here? So, uh, <laughs> Arkansas might. is beautiful. We, yes, we, we we very well might. I mean, it's, <laughs> that's the thing. I don't I don't know where we'll be tomorrow night. To be hundred percent <laughs> honest, so I can't really commit one way or the other, but. Um, but it's been a, it's been a good adventure. And, uh, I will say with the RV, we, we have also been starting to do some socially distanced coffees. I got to see, um, Paul Elstone, who's the, who's the VP of development at the university of Oregon. I ran into Mark Koenig, who's the, um, uh, chief innovation officer at Oregon state university. We did a socially distanced hello. So we're, we're starting to, to open up a little bit, uh, here at Evertrue as well. Uh, and so the RV has been a blessing in that regard. So you never know, I might see you there soon. Uh, there's a good chance I'll be swinging through uh, Auburn. And if, if that is the case, I'll make sure to send a selfie or two. All right. Yeah, perfect. Awesome. Hey, have a terrific Halloween. I hope that uh, it goes uh, well for you and your families. And I need to go figure out what my costume is going to be. Have a great Friday. Take care. Cheers. Good to see you. Thank you.